welcome to the second of our Lechela podcasts, where we're chatting all things social connectedness, place, health and well-being, the role of the libraries in today's rural communities, and looking to the future with Western Isles Libraries. My name's Fiona, and today I'm joined not only by my co-host, who'll introduce himself in a minute, but also by two community members and a researcher, all from across the Western Isles, who'll be joining in with today's conversation. And hello, it's Lewis from the Science Cayley. The last few years have been an extraordinary and challenging time for many reasons, but of course particularly with the still ongoing pandemic, and so the theme of today's podcast is exploring what we've learned about ourselves and our wider communities during this time. This links to the postcards from Western Isles Libraries, which have been shared across the aisles with the mobile library services. Here to join us for this discussion uh, today, digitally, is Agnes Vreni, who is not only on the board of the Golston Estate Trust, uh, who have been very active over the pandemic within the community-owned estate in North Lewis on the Western Isles, but is also Fiona's mother. Alongside that, we also have Maggie Smith, who's coordinator of the community arts group Cabrich. And here to discuss from the researcher's perspective is Dr Liz Ellis, who works at the University of the Highlands and Islands, the Division for Rural Health and Wellbeing. Now, don't forget, for those who are listening, we'd love to hear from you. For those who are in the room just now, though, thank you all for coming. It's lovely to have you all here with us today. We'll start off with just a little introduction to yourselves. So would you like to introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your personal experience throughout the lockdown? Um, what did you learn about yourself and, and the wider community for that matter? And Agnes, mum, I'm not sure what to call you in this professional capacity, but we'll start with Agnes. <laughs> uh, should we start with yourself? Okay, as your mum and as Agnes, um, my experience was fairly similar in both situations. Actually, it's quite interesting, I think, to recall that uh, in my home life in Golson, suddenly transported to working from home overnight, as many of us were, we suddenly found ourselves at home all the time, um, which is something which I crave and did crave at that time very many times, but actually to have it happen uh, out of your control was something entirely different. And I think that was a challenge. I think that was a huge challenge. Um, who am I? I live in the village of Golson, um, on uh, Croft in Golson, that's been the family for many years. And in the context of today's podcast, I'm on the board of Urusaur Gausing, Golson Estate Trust. And our organisation, I wouldn't say came into its own, but certainly found a role that was really quite, quite central to how the community was able to respond to the pandemic. And we can probably come back to some of that later. Gleva, sounds really, really interesting. I can't wait to unpick that, Agnes. Um, how about for yourself, Maggie? I'm Maggie Smith and I'm the volunteer coordinator for Capri Community Arts. And uh, during lockdown, I was a bit a bit concerned at suddenly having to be working from home the whole time. And it was also, um, I think it was a time for reassessing a lot of things when suddenly the rug was pulled under you. You had to make decisions about what you were going to do in the future. On a personal level, as regards going out into the community, I remember being concerned about going into the shop. And for a long time, for a few weeks, I didn't go. And when I did go, I was really feeling very insecure about going into the environment of the shop where all the direction signs had changed and you had to keep your distance from people. 
And I really had to pull myself up short and say, come on, look at all these people who've been working in this shop for three months. They've been here every day and they're okay. So it was it was something that I never, ever imagined that I would be feeling as I went into the shop, having all these doubts about myself. The other, the funny thing was about, um, we look onto the house next door and uh, they generally, they're, they're very, very quiet people and they don't get a lot of visitors. But I, one day I saw somebody coming from Tesco with a delivery and then somebody came from the, the doctor's surgery with a delivery and then somebody else arrived with something else. Everything was being left outside. And I found myself going, well, what's wrong with us? And I had a wee bit of visitor envy and I just thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever. And it just gave me such a laugh. And that's when I realised just, you know, how much it had affected me in, in away from my normal kind of uh, interaction within the community. So as regards our own community group, uh, we uh, had regular projects going on and a wide network of people. and suddenly you you worried about those people and how they were doing and uh, I'll talk a little bit about that in the next section of the, the chat. Brilliant thank you very much Maggie I'm sure we're not alone in, in all of those things we definitely had visitor envy and but also at the same time um, I know just something you picked up on there about the prescription delivery and the Tesco delivery it was really amazing to see the resilience of our community and how all of these little things which went unnoticed for quite a while really stepped up. Liz, I'll just come back to you for a second. How did you find the last year and a bit, I guess? Yeah, um, very surreal, I guess. Um, I'm kind of used to working from home in many ways. I think one of the things that lockdown taught me was that Actually, I'm quite happy when I don't have to engage in a lot of small talk and chit chat. But kind of like reflecting on what um, Agnes said about wanting to be at home, but when it's out of our control, it's not the same. And and then it's like it was like forced on me. Yeah, I I kind of started to miss that connection of you know that. That, that idea of like you know chatting to people it, it kind of like creates a kind of social glue I think um the community island so I'm not in one of the islands I, I live in uh, Drumnod Rocket and it was I think the the local community seemed to get organized quite quickly um the fish man so we have we have a fish man who comes every week and you know I mean he was always quite popular but he became really popular. I mean, you would have to queue for forty minutes, <laughs> and he he actually he actually cut down his hours because he was saying like his rounds were taking like four or five times longer because one there were more people coming because it is an absolute legit buying fish is a legitimate reason to be outside of your house, you know, and always having a ch having a chat with you know the other people in the queue and you know with with the fishman himself so yeah it was interesting how you here we develop this kind of like in front you uh meeting point it's really interesting how that sense of space has changed and actually that is one of our upcoming themes as well for the podcast in terms of that community and like how it's been drawn in um but i suppose um 
and having visited uh, Maggie's place, actually, and knowing where it is as well, and seeing how that, how, how even the neighbours, uh, how that, you know, I, I think our point of reference with communities groups has, has changed very much. And again, not living on the islands, but living in Leith in Edinburgh, which is a very different urban space, but feeling that kind of a very different sense of of, of place and, and feeling very out with Edinburgh, actually. And obviously, Leith is very separate. We have a very strong identity otherwise, but it felt even more so. Very glad to be near the water. Very glad, really appreciating nature and a very different way in particular. So I suppose the next question that we were going to come to is potentially thinking about, well, what were the kind of challenges of maintaining social connections when living rurally um, during the pandemic for, for yourselves? Um, and what did you do to actually help maintain social connections? Um, and I think a lot of communities have to be very creative about how that happened. Perhaps we can start with Maggie first. Yes, our community arts group, uh, Caprich, had been running a weekly music event with about 30 to 40 people. And then after COVID began, suddenly we realised it had all been very, very relaxed. So we had no phone numbers, no email addresses or anything. We just opened the door, these people piled in. And uh, I regretted not having some kind of system to contact people. But through people meeting in the co-op or on the street, you kind of got a network to people to, to be able to make contact with them. So we ended up um, reaching out to several people who didn't have IT skills, but they had a computer or they had a, an iPad. And uh, we set about trying to recreate a community online. And we were fortunate to be able to get the assistance of a technical support person and uh, talk people through on their mobile to try this. And then if they needed a camera, we'd be able to get one in the local shop to be able to fit it onto their PC or their laptop. And fortunately, most people had access to the internet. So the way to get them online was that we would have a music session online. So we started off on a Friday night doing a music session. And that turned out to be mostly women and that was on Facebook Messenger, that was done. And then on a Thursday night, I was doing a weekly Zoom and that was Gaelic. And uh, it was a Gaelic Cayley. And uh, we ended up getting members of the original Friday night group who were native Gaelic speakers, who were musicians or singers. We managed to get them in on the call and at some stage it went around a Gaelic Learners Network email ring. And we started getting people from Glasgow and Edinburgh coming in. And then we started getting parents and children who were in the, in the Gaelic school in Glasgow and Edinburgh with the parents supporting them to learn the language. So we're, we're extending the network of people all the time. And then we got people from coming in from Canada uh, they'd also been involved in the, the Gaelic email ring. And it was quite interesting because the people we started off with originally, um, they got this great sense of value of who they were and the language they spoke. And, and they say, oh, who are we having tonight? You no know, very great excitement about this. So for six months, the Cayleys ran online. The music session started again about six weeks ago, quite restricted compared to what it was. And some people have veered over to that group, but some others have, um, having learned their new skills, they were able to join other music groups online. And um, it's all very exciting. So I really don't know where it's going to go next. 
I must. I, I've, I've got to jump in here at this point because I have had the absolute pleasure to join one of these Friday Cayley sessions when we were working on our bilingualism project with Science Cayley, and it's a right hoot, and it's been fantastic to be able to see it uh, online as well and, and move that forward. But that's it's really exciting to hear that, Maggie. That sounds really fun. I'm kind of blown away constantly by the different projects that we're hearing that kind of were happening almost within insular communities for a while, but are now that we're kind of going back to normal, inverted commas, they're branching out and reaching all these new people and, and continuing to be a really, really positive influence in, in wider communities as well as our own small, more rural ones. Agnes, I'll come back to you just now and ask yourself the same question. I, I know having lived and worked in the exact same community as you have for the last two years, how much has been going on. But um, what were some of the challenges of maintaining that social connection um, within sort of a community land ownership perspective maybe particularly living rurally during the pandemic and what were some of the ways that we were um, maintaining that social connection? It's quite interesting hearing Maggie earlier on referring to uh, you know the visitor envy It, it, it was really quite bizarre to be living in the kind of communities that we live in and suddenly not being able to visit anybody I mean literally you just realized that it was not the thing to do. And you found yourself, you know, we take eggs, for example, to, to a neighbour who lives quite close by. And the first day that I called with the eggs and, and knocked at the door, the whole thing was like playing out the most bizarre clay, where suddenly you'd had foisted upon you these kind of rules of so, social interaction that not only did you not understand them, but you didn't understand how to play them out. And um, so the first couple of times that I and and my sister Joan visited with the eggs, she really found it very, very hard. And elderly aunts, the same. But why can't you come in? Why cannot you come in? And of course, the reason you couldn't, you didn't want to go in was not because of what they were going to give you, because they didn't go anywhere. It was that the last thing on earth you wanted was that you were going to be the, the, the link in the chain that was going to bring something awful to them, because this was way ahead of, of, of vaccine and so on. But that aside, um, living in a, in, a, in a community where um, there's still quite a lot of outdoor activity, I have to say that through that, um, and being springtime and into summertime, my goodness, that was just a saving grace. That was just amazing. Um, Louis, you mentioned earlier, you know, being near the waters of Leith and seeing, you know, just seeing the waters and, you know, lambing time, you have to go out. That, that was a permissible activity <laughs> and you had to go out and, and by virtue of having to go out, you inevitably came across your neighbours, some of your neighbours, at least that way, although you weren't able to go into the house. That, that was definitely a, a, a bonus that, that we had living in, in, in communities like, you know, Maggie and I live in. No, no question. Absolutely no question. Um, as far as um, the URAS was concerned, Obviously, suddenly all staff were working from home, but also all of a sudden there were some real challenges within the community and uh, socially isolated people were very obviously very vulnerable. So one of the one of the first things that, that the Oros put in place was for each of the 22 townships that make up the Golson Estate Trust, 
a village WhatsApp group was set up. And so interestingly, because we also live in a community now where all the time new people are moving in. This was an opportunity to give an equal and very level playing field for everybody to join in and be be involved or not. If, they, if people didn't want to be involved, that was entirely their prerogative, of course. But it was presented as an opportunity to be in touch, to stay in touch, and so that nobody was alone. And it's very interesting how, depending on who the individuals were and um, you know, who at different different townships used it in many different ways. Uh, and sometimes, well, springtime, we still had the occasional power cut. So the word would go out, have you got power? No, we don't have power. Yes, we have power, blah, 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 and so on, you know. But also in the initial stages when, as as you said, Maggie, you know, you were fearful even of going to, to the shop, to the local shop, far less the co-op. But suddenly as people started to move, People would say, well, I'm going to Stornoway. Does anybody need anything? And these kind of uh, words went out on, on, on the WhatsApp group too. And certainly in, in our case here in Colson, I wasn't aware that anybody abused that in any way. Uh, and my, my sense is that that was the case in other areas too. Now, these WhatsApp groups still exist. Of course, with the passage of time and people being out and about and people being able to do things for themselves, um, they don't have the same importance uh, per se. But just today, I actually got a message on, on our own WhatsApp group here saying, is there power over in South Colson or are we the only people without power today? So still they have a function. So, yeah, there are lots of other things, too, to be honest with you, lots of other things where if you have uh, if you have a structure, if you've got an organization where people look out rather than just look in, then within our communities, people are able to use these. And the one thing that became very, very clear to me and uh, Maggie's example of her own organization, Cabri, the URAS as a very different kind of organization and many others throughout the community. These were the organizations that stepped up and mm. did what had to be done to allow people to live their lives in a safe and healthy and, and relatively fulfilling way when the public organisations really found it very, very hard to come together and take quick decisions. Mm, that's really, really interesting. And that power of the grassroots and almost like, you know, and it's fascinating to how that 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 has filled a void and democratised actually engagement and set up these pathways of um, communication that, that will have a legacy, um, even if it's just to check who's got power and who hasn't um, and who's got visitors and who hasn't, perhaps. I don't know. But that's really interesting. And I think maybe, you know, if Kathleen from the Western Isles Libraries were here, I'm sure she'll have lots to say in terms of how that's affected in terms of, you know, the services, and but again how there was so much grassroots things going on and, and you know people popping in or being able to find different ways of dropping things off at doorsteps even if uh you know things were broken we couldn't get things repaired or whatever it would be you know it was a real this real sense of stepping up so I, I think that it'll be really interesting to hear from Liz whose research you know is looking at that kind of community responses and around health and well-being in particular and does this resound with anything that you've been working on at, at all yeah, I mean, it's just, I'm kind of like making notes and going, oh, that's what someone, <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's a lot of um, connections with with what um, Maggie and Agnes have been saying. I mean, the stuff around like the, you know, 
the, the, the digital divide that exists in, I mean, not just in rural places, but particularly for people who, who are disabled um, or have long-term conditions is, is huge. And you've got issues around actual connection. So there's like the infrastructure thing and there's the ability to, to use Zoom or Teams or whatever. Um, so, so there's been quite a bit of work going on around that. But one of the things which we don't always get is that a lot of people actually don't feel comfortable using online formats. So that might be because they they just don't like using the internet. You know, so you know before before the pandemic, it's like they they never really bothered with it because they were too busy or what have you. So so there's people who are kind of like behind in in terms of digital skills, but also there there are people who who actually physically find it not very accessible. So one of the respondents I spoke to found it really frustrating because they, they were constantly being pushed into having video conferencing for health, you know, for health reasons. So using Zoom and near me. And they, they actually, they don't have the dexterity of their hands to do it. So it was, it was you know, things like that were quite difficult. Um, I think it's really, really interesting um, about th this idea of uh, creating a level playing field with WhatsApp groups, what, um, what Agnes was saying. I, th I think that's quite interesting. And something which people have been reporting to us is that it's, it's often like the small local organisations, which were very, very flexible and adapted to doing other stuff rather than the bigger organisations. Now, some people did complain about this because, you know, someone, you know, we had someone who was saying like, well, you know, this organisation, they're supposed to be doing like day centre stuff and supporting X group of people. And instead, they're kind of like doing this stuff for other people. So, you know, you can't always win. But yeah, it was the, the small organisations were much more I think they're kind of like really cringy term people use now is agile. So they were like very adaptable. You know, a lot of people found that really, really helpful. And yeah, a lot of people in, you know, the rural and remote communities, you know, they had significant challenges around loneliness. I mean, over two thirds of the people we, we interviewed explicitly said that they had experienced loneliness and isolation during the pandemic which is you know it's it's an eye-opening amount but it also needs to be understood that a lot of people were actually socially isolated before that so people who have you know depending on on their specific long-term condition um, they might have been socially isolated anyway because they can't access public transport because their local environment isn't very accessible in terms of like pavements, things like that. And also, some I mean, I mean there was one person um, who was autistic who reported that they actually loved lockdown because it took all that pressure away. So the, the, there's some interesting stuff coming out around how actually 
pan the pandemic didn't make a huge amount. I think there were about four or five people who said variations of, well, it made no difference to me because we were li already living a pandemic lockdown lifestyle. So that's one of the things which, you know, we found really, really interesting. But yeah, that, the isolation that people have experienced, it's really quite extraordinary. But and equally so, the the way that local communities have kind of like just like they just went straight in and started doing stuff, not always successfully, but they were doing it and they got better as they went along. The stuff around food, um, like community organisation of food, was was one of the ones where it was. Um, not very helpful because the people reporting they're going like i've got a freezer full of steak pies and i can't eat them because i have i'm on a special diet and i just and i but i can't throw them away because that's wasteful and so that you know sometimes it there wasn't there wasn't necessarily a lot of thought about how local communities responded but the point is that they did respond and they adapted when the issues came up in a in a in a better way than larger organizations did really really interesting and i think there's a lot of crossover in the things that both agnes and maggie were talking about and picked up on so it's a really interesting perspective from from the research side of things that that's a a nationwide view on things and happening in other communities other than ourselves and also the point that you picked up about um those who are already socially isolated we obviously through the land trust we were quite aware that there were people we weren't reaching and people who we're already socially isolated and the pandemic almost forced us, like you said, to be adaptable and to start thinking about things and making progress and these sort of things in a, in a way that we weren't able to before. Yeah, I should have clarified this research was based on interviews done with people living in remote and rural areas of the Highlands and Islands. It's not, I should, should clarify, it wasn't Scotland as a whole, it's just Highlands and Islands and only remote and rural areas. Really interesting. Um, and I think as well, you touched a bit about um, the kind of route to recovery. So I'll come back to yourself, Agnes, um, for the last question, which is um, what in your perspective is needed for the communities to recover from this last couple of years? Oh, that's just a huge question because clearly we're not out of it yet. Uh, I think that's been the, the thing that's been most difficult for us all, irrespective of, of, of you know, where we stand with, within the community to, to get to grips with. Because let's face it, when the first lockdown started in the spring of 2020, and we thought we would be home for a few weeks, and I think we all closed our workplace doors behind us and took our laptops home with us. And, um, you know, a year later, we were still at home, many of us. Or if not at home all the time, then at least, you know, having to make adjustments to the way that we worked and the way that we were able to work with our colleagues. And that's had a huge impact, I think, on not just on ourselves as individuals, but but also at a community level, because in terms of of um, isolation in particular, all the groups that people participated in stopped. Everything stopped. The places that people mostly met up in. Um, you know, for a lot of people, meeting at church was an important part of their lives. For a lot of people, meeting at uh, the day centre was an important part of their lives. 
meeting, you know, for parents with school aged children, then and certainly young school aged children meeting around the school. And, and these things were just not permitted. And coming back and, and finding a way through what is, I, I, I actually think the new normal is a good way to describe it, because it's certainly not the old normal whenever and if ever we're able to go back to that, I don't know. So it's how we make sense of the new normal, but bring some normality back to people's lives. And I think particularly for vulnerable people, I'm very conscious that in our own community, in our own immediate community, uh, I'm, I'm quite involved with the, the community centre. And we took a long time before deciding that it was safe to open at, at any level. And now it's a case of finding a way to, to reassure people that it is actually safe, not just to use it, but for they themselves as, as groups, given that they put certain protocols in place and given that everything that can be provided is provided within the centre, that we are on a pathway whereby we can start resuming some things. And uh, I, I, I'm sure that, that, that Maggie will have something to say about this in terms of, of her own group. But I think that finding ways of reassuring people that we can resume some normality in our lives is the biggest challenge. Maggie, do you want to respond to that? Um, thanks, Agnes. Yes, um, while you were talking there, I was thinking, especially about community centres, because we had those people who were uh, talking to each other online and they were getting a bit bored. So I thought, yeah, it's time to look at, see what else is happening, what can be opening. And of course, a couple of the community centres opened, uh, limited numbers. So it was more a way of trying to disperse people into different channels, you know, where there, was, where there wasn't too many people, but still trying to bring newcomers into the group because of the awareness of social isolation. Uh, I was reminded, Liz, I was reminded of one time we went to the health board to try and get some support for our group, especially for the activity on the Friday night. And uh, I mentioned social inclusion and social isolation. And uh, they said, oh, well, we're doing a certain research project at the moment. And you can assist us by uh, getting people to complete these forms. So it was it was quite in depth. And uh, I went through it and I interviewed 18 people. And 17 people told me they had been socially isolated before they started coming along to our weekly group on a Friday night, which to me was quite a scary statistic. And that is really what drives me to try and keep people together. Now, there are even more people now who uh, that I haven't been able to reach. And the last couple of weeks, I've been quite concerned, saying, well, there's nothing in the paper. There's uh, no word from the health board or the council to say, what are we going to do post-pandemic? How are we going to address this social isolation? And I think after our conversation today, I've sort of realised, well, actually, it's up to us because we're the ones who are flexible enough to be able to embrace that challenge. So yeah, the original question there was, what is needed for the community to recover? And I would answer that, a big discussion, everybody having a voice, and then the implementation with funding support to be able 
to reach out and bring people together. Thanks so much, Maggie. One massive WhatsApp <laughs> group. Maybe it's not the most democratic way of doing that, but uh, that's some really interesting, really powerful insights there about the rising from the grassroots, which I think is absolutely right. Um, I guess just to kind of round this up, Liz, I suppose from your perspective, you know, from your interviews from across the Highlands and Islands, what's coming out in terms of recovery? So we're not really um, at the stage of pulling kind of recommendations out um, from the data yet, because we're still, I mean, we're literally still just kind of like in the middle of analysing it. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to see um, the outcomes, you know, if there's any kind of like reports from um, that project Maggie uh, mentioned. But yeah, I mean, what do we do to address social isolation? It's such a massive question and so often like, responses which address some forms of social isolation inevitably end up excluding other people. I mean, it's it's really, really tricky, but I think it, it has to come from communities themselves. The, the only way we can really do this is, is if it comes from the communities themselves. And yeah, money, well, not just money, but resources generally. And I think there's, there's an attitude that you know, it's like, oh, we'll do some like grassroots community work and it'll just kind of like magically spring up. But actually, I think communities need resources and that, that includes money. I think money is important because, you know, these things don't literally grow on trees, but also resources around supporting people. So, you know, giving people some direct power, I think would really help, giving communities direct power but also ensuring that those communities have the support and facilitation to exercise that power. You know, one thing which did come out of the research is that people um, receiving support services were hit really, really hard. I mean, you know, in some cases, you know, some of the interviews were just heartbreaking. You know, people saying that if it wasn't for the fact that they had little kids, they would be killing themselves because they had no support overnight you know there was someone who was you know had a relative who needed 24 hour two to one support and literally overnight all that support disappeared that was absolutely catastrophic and you know i i think you know what would be really great is if we could actually think about care and support in local communities organized and delivered by local communities because i think it would make it would make support systems a lot more sustainable and i think it could also help make community like rural communities more sustainable because you wouldn't have people having to you know so, so some of the people we, we were talking to they were living on islands and they were looking at having to move from the island because there wasn't the support in place so they were going to have to move somewhere like inverness or Fort William, for example. And, you know, that, that you talk about, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And I think maybe we could, should be like thinking small like this. That's what I'd like to see. And I think, you know, I, I think the way forward out of this pandemic and some of the, the, the problems that it's exposed, particularly around health and social care, that you know the answers are going to come from you know within those communities and the responses come from within the communities thank you so much liz i think that's a really interesting kind of way to look at it as well looking from out with looking at rural 
communities and rural organizations is a really good example and sort of using that structure in a broader scale perhaps I'm afraid that's the as much as we've got time for today though so thank you very much um a wonderful conversation as always I've really enjoyed listening and participating for today though thank you all so much for coming Agnes Rennie Maggie Smith and Liz Ellis So now over to the listeners, especially for those in the Western Isles, but elsewhere too, you're welcome to be part of it. What have you learnt about your own community and yourself in the last year? Uh, Remember that you can feed in by sharing your creative postcards, uh, by getting in touch with the Western Isles Libraries, Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag Lechele Together by email together at cne-seir.gov.uk or on our website lechelatogether.wordpress.com Next session we are exploring a sense of place which has come up a wee bit today already. What makes a place? Is it the landmarks, the nature, the people and how can it support our health and well-being? This will link to the postcards uh, we're hoping to use to build a community map uh, so do share your postcards with us uh, and your contributions and we do also have another researcher joining us uh, as well uh, who will be able to talk about this a little bit more and so if you've got any questions you can absolutely uh, join in that way or even join us on the call uh, where we'll be recording on the Wednesday the 13th of October and details can be found online. Thanks for joining. Cheerio Nasta. Keep your eye out for future episodes of the Lehela Together podcast every other Monday on most podcasting platforms. Lehela Together is funded by the Engaging Libraries Fund, supported by the Carnegie UK Trust, Wellcome Trust and the Wolfson Foundation. Lehela is led by Western Isles Libraries, Lyorlan Lanyelan Shear, in partnership with the Division for Rural Health and Wellbeing at University of Highlands and Islands and Science Cayley, including hosting with Lewis Hu. This podcast is also hosted and produced by Fiona Rennie with artwork by Alice McMillan and music from Jane Hepburn McMillan. Mm-hmm.